Welcome to the HR Chat Podcast, bringing the best of the HR and talent communities to you. Welcome to another episode of the HR Chat Show. I'm your host today, Bill Bannum. And in this HR Chat, we're going to consider ways that leaders and HR can turn a company's culture into one based on agility, resilience, and innovation. My illustrious, super famous, awesome, wonderful guest today is Kevin Oakes, CEO and co-founder over at the Institute for Corporate Productivity, the leading authority on next practices in human capital. He's also the author of Culture Renovation, the number one new release in a dozen Amazon book categories, drawing on data from one of the largest studies ever conducted on corporate culture. Culture Renovation details how high-performance organizations such as Microsoft, T-Mobile, 3M, MasterCard, and many more have successfully changed organizational culture. Kevin, welcome to the show today. Thanks, Bill. Glad, glad to be here. So beyond my reintroduction there, Kevin, why don't you start by taking a minute or two and telling our listeners a bit more about yourself? Yeah, sure. I'm happy to. So I'm the uh, CEO and co-founder of the Institute for Corporate Productivity. It's kind of a mouthful. So we shorten it to I4CP. Uh, we do more HR research than just about anyone on the planet, always with a business lens of what are high-performing organizations doing differently with their people practices versus low-performing organizations. We define high performance as companies that have better revenue growth, market share, profitability, customer satisfaction than their competition. And uh, so we have a team of analysts that looks at a variety of human capital topics, culture being uh, one near and dear to my heart. And uh, that's uh, the research report that you referenced at the beginning and where the book came from. We are living through extraordinary times. Um, many of us in in countries such as the US, Canada, and the UK, we're, we're lucky enough now that we can we can see the light. We're, we're coming through it. Um, not everybody, of course, and there are many places in the world that are still um, mired in, in in the worst of of COVID. But right. I, I think I think we've all learned things about ourselves over the course of the last sixteen months, eighteen months or so, and. Um, Part of part of uh, what what's happened has um, has been perhaps uh, people have been a bit more introspective. They, they've 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 opened up. They've um, they're, they're, there's a greater acceptance that people are vulnerable and they've got things going on in their personal lives. And and then a- alongside this has been has been the movement for more equity, um, particularly since the murder of George Floyd. What what are what are some of the signs that an organization is is in need of a culture renovation to to, to meet the, these these new challenges to to step up to to be more considerate to be more equitable and and has the pandemic in your opinion exacerbated any of these problems well i've, I've counseled many companies on this uh, bill and you know there's no question that company culture has changed over this last year and a half during the pandemic and you know we're moving from one phase just to a, a, another new phase for a lot of organizations uh, as we uh, embrace flexible or hybrid work or you know some companies are asking employees to come back to the office others are very comfortable with remote and you brought up you know numerous things that have happened over the year, last year and a half um, certainly from a DEI perspective that have certainly shaped corporate culture overall and so to your question of, you know, what, what's a sign that companies should be uh, looking at their culture and, and trying to shape it, 
to me, every company really should be constantly looking at that. And for some of the companies that I profiled in the book, the um, the best time to change culture is when everything is is going smoothly. Frankly, uh, although the you know the biggest catalyst for changing culture is a company has undergone uh, poor performance. You know, maybe they've had several bad earnings quarters, or they have a new CEO is a very common time when companies will be looking at their culture. Uh, or they've done a you know a large acquisition. Uh, those are all sort of the common catalysts. But I love the companies that they they want to stay agile. They want to make sure that um, the culture is changing along with the environment because the, the environment is constantly changing. And certainly we've seen a lot of that in the last year and a half. And so I I think for any company right now you've got to be thinking about if my if my culture has changed, do we want to be passive about that and um, you know just let that change happen, or do we want to be proactive and shape the culture we want for the future? And uh, that's where I think the uh, the 18 steps that I outlined in the book can be of great help to some of those organizations. This podcast is supported by Fidelo Inc a consulting firm specializing in improving human performance. Through their products and services, Fidelo helps clients design, develop, and implement strategic integrated human resource processes and systems. Learn more at fidelo.com. That's F-I-D-E-L-L-O.com. You, you write that too often an organization's leaders assume that they know what their culture represents but too often they are in fact absolutely wrong why are they often wrong kevin and and how do they yeah. try to turn that around and, and get it right yeah I've, I've often said that you know probably one of the worst things a, a leadership team can do is lock themselves in a conference room and uh, talk amongst themselves about what the culture is today because they will get it wrong and the reason they get that wrong, Bill, is oftentimes things are filtered by the time it you know gets up to the level of the CEO and the senior leadership team. They don't know all the issues that are happening in the company. You know, the bigger the company, the more they don't know. And so that's why we're big advocates in listening to the workforce and really trying to gauge and measure employee sentiment overall. That's step number one of the 18 steps. And I, I profiled several companies that have done that very effectively to begin their culture renovation. Those um, That employee sentiment, though, has taken a lot of different shapes and forms uh, over the last couple of years. Um, certainly during the pandemic, companies were surveying the workforce more than they were before, which is a good thing. Um, prior to that, a lot of companies were relying primarily on an annual engagement survey and uh, we, we have said very loudly that that's a false proxy for the health of your culture. Uh, it's a point in time survey. And you know as well as I do, Bill, that you know there are certain things that bubble up as big issues at one point in time that then die out you know, in the next week. Uh, and so to avoid those false positives, it's important to more frequently um, pulse survey the workforce but some companies are, are doing that using new technology. I, I love uh, the, the uh, natural language processing combined with AI platforms that have, that have come out where you allow employees to write their sentiment in their own words, not from pre-canned answers. And uh, you allow the system to then um, analyze that data. 
and categorize that data into meaningful uh, bits of information that you can use as an organization. Uh, that is starting to revolutionize the way we think about employee sentiment and gather employee sentiment. And ultimately, I think that's one of the healthiest ways to really understand what's happening in the culture today. So we've spoken a lot on this show before about, um, for example, uh, advocates within within companies, un- maybe unknown advocates that you need to identify, and then they'll they'll spread the word and and they'll they'll portray your your employer brand as as one that you know would be would be worthwhile working for, for for example. But I want to I want to go a bit deeper than that because you say that during culture renovation, it's important to stress the the importance of identifying the influencers, the energizers and the blockers. Can, can you can you briefly describe these types of people and, and why it's important to identify them? You know, in any company, Bill, there are go-to people that everybody seems to turn to for information, uh, for inspiration, sometimes just for energy. You have people like this in your life where you talk to somebody and you walk away from that conversation just pumped up and energized and then you have the opposite, right? Where you talk to somebody who just kind of sucks the life out of the room, you know, as, as you have that conversation. In the context of culture change or culture renovation, it's important to identify those influencers and those energizers. Uh, you you called them advocates, which is a fine term. In the book, we call those culture ambassadors. And those are the people that are really going to help make change happen throughout the organization, particularly at the, at the lower levels. Now, the problem is, if you again, if you ask senior leaders who are those influencers, they're going to miss most of them. Uh, they're going to get some of the obvious ones that are higher up in the hierarchy, uh, but a lot of times they miss the, the real influencers because they're buried in the hierarchy. Uh, they're, they're lower level. Sometimes they're introverts, not extroverts, and so they don't necessarily stand out but these are the people that make the company hum. And so we, um, we're big advocates of a science called organizational network analysis. And uh, this is a way of uncovering those invisible people. Uh, the father of this science is Rob Cross, who's a professor at Babson College. And we do a lot of work with Rob on really trying to understand who are the people that are in the middle of that communication and collaboration beehive, and then who's on the outskirts. And the the way you uncover that is um, through either surveying the workforce and asking some very specific questions and and, uh, doing some mapping so that you can really analyze that organizational network. Or you can also monitor uh, common collaboration channels or or, uh, platforms like email, Slack, teams, you know, however people are communicating inside the organization. The surveying method is probably a little bit more accurate because you can ask those energizer questions uh, and then look at people who do the opposite. And and the people who do the opposite generally are going to be those blockers um, that you mentioned. And you want to make sure that you can try to uncover some of those blockers because a lot of culture change efforts get derailed uh, by, by people in your own organization who you know, either maybe feel like their territory is being intruded on or their power is being usurped or for whatever reason, they just don't go along with whatever change you're trying to make to the culture. It's important to know who those people are, as well as the people who are going to be the ambassadors that get it 
really happening inside the organization. That's very interesting. Uh, I, my, my mind initially goes to the fact that pulse surveys, for example, that you mentioned earlier, other, other surveys, anonymity is important to, to employees when, when questions are being asked. Can, can you can you suggest a, an example of, of, of a question that could be posed to identify a, a blocker, but also an, an influencer, you know, someone who does is a conduit and, uh, and, and will, will say great things about the company? Yeah, I mean, there's a series of questions that we ask that uncover that. And when when we talk about anonymity, uh, the larger the organization, the easier it is to provide anonymity. Um, I often will tell folks, promise confidentiality, not necessarily anonymity. Uh, you know, and you'll you'll arrive at the same thing. Uh, that sometimes helps when you have a smaller company or when you have a department that has only three or five people in it, it's, it's really hard to uh, promise anonymity in, in some of those situations. But in the book, I, I did profile um, some questions that people have asked. One question that I just loved was from Amazon. And they Amazon does an interesting thing. They ask a question a day of the workforce. And when we talk about survey fatigue, and a lot of people you know, will roll their eyes when they hear, oh, you know, we're going to get surveyed every week or every, you know, every uh, couple of days. Uh, what Amazon does to combat that is before you log on in the morning into uh, the network, it will ask you one question. And that becomes sort of habit, right? It's, uh, it, I, I think it actually prevents survey fatigue because it's just so quick and easy and, and you know, part of the morning ritual. Uh, but they use that question very strategically. Uh, the question I highlighted in the book was, is your manager a simplifier or a complexifier? And I love that question because I think it immediately got all managers thinking, hmm, what is my style? You know, am I, am I making things more simple for my team or more complex for my team? And they'll use the question uh, strategically to start conversation, you know, or set a tone inside the organization about a particular topic. And you can imagine, you know, during uh, George Floyd and, and just in general from a DE&I perspective, uh, you know, they're asking some thoughtful questions to get the workforce talking about a particular topic, but also gathering data along the way that they can use just to better understand their culture. A common culture problem that you mentioned in, in the book is collaboration overload. This term fascinates me. Further, you say COVID-19 demonstrated just how large the problem has become. So, <laughs> Kevin, what, what, what is collaboration overload and how can business leaders and employees alike perhaps aim and work towards overcoming this issue? Yeah, sure. And this was a term, again, that Rob Cross, who I mentioned earlier, um, had originally coined in an article in HPR. And I'll give him a little plug. He's got a new book uh, called Beyond Collaboration Overload uh, coming out this fall. And <clears throat> the term has really um, picked up a lot of steam over the last few years. I think if you ask most people, do you feel like you suffer from collaborative overload, they're going to tell you yes. But there are some people in your organization who really suffer from it, and they're typically your best people. You know, if you go back to those influencers that I talked about or those go-to people, um, those are the people at greatest risk from collaborative overload. You know, they just have so many people coming to them for answers. Uh, and it's important for you to know that because you want to make it safe for them to raise their hand and say, look, I'm just exhausted. I have too much on my plate. Uh, you know, we need to figure out something so that I can, you know, make my, my day and my life easier. 
or you want to make it safe for them to delegate responsibilities to other folks inside the organization. And that organizational network analysis will uncover that and show you those people, again, at the center of the beehive. They very well may be suffering from collaborative overload. And because they're such superstars, you don't want to lose them uh, as a result of that. Now, with technologies today, Bill, it's easier to reach people than ever before. And, you know, if you're like me, you've got multiple uh, channels that you've got to check on a regular basis. You know, it's not just voicemails and emails, it's Teams, it's Slack, it's texts, it's all kinds of ways that, you know, people can, can reach the typical, uh, you know, business person, particularly business executives. Uh, so overload is becoming a bit of an issue, and, you, and I think the way to combat that, again, is just to make it psychologically safe uh, for people to, uh, to, to declare that they're overloaded. You've been, you've been in the human capital field for, for more than 25 years, so I guess since you're about four or five years old. Um, and you mentioned that in, increasingly you've seen high-performance organizations showcase their CEO-CHRO relationship, something that was right. rarely done in the past. What, what makes this a critical partnership? And how, if at all, has it changed during the pandemic? And I'd just like to add to that as well. How, how has the role of the CHRO changed? I mean, I, I've read a lot about folk who are being appointed as CHROs at large companies who have never had the HR background before. They're, 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 they're data analysts, for example. Yeah, you know, much like in the 2008-2009 financial crisis, the difference between financial viability or not was often um, attributed to a good CFO or not. And I think what we saw during the pandemic is the companies that uh, made it through uh, just fine versus the ones who really suffered could be attributed to, do you have a strategic CHRO or not? And I love walking into companies today where the CEO views that head of HR as one of the three or four inner circle executives that they really rely on. And, you know, it's, it's hard to argue that they shouldn't, right? Uh, you know, if you're looking at your typical company, you've got your products and services, you've got your financials, and you've got your people, right? And the CHRO really is the person you've got to look at to, uh, you know, shepherd the, the health and well-being of that workforce. And, uh, make sure that workforce is a you know a, a productive one, and that the culture overall is a healthy culture. And so, in the book, I profiled many of those relationships, and it, there was no escaping the fact that for companies who are trying to change their culture, and I should have said this earlier, uh, most companies fail at doing that. We found that only about 15% succeed, and that's what our, our research report honed in on: is there a blueprint or commonality? Uh, of those companies that succeeded. And I'll tell you one commonality is that the CEO and CHRO were partners in that effort. Uh, they, um, you know, I, I think uh, some of the relationships that are profiled in the book, it was pretty obvious that those two um, led the charge around a culture renovation uh, and rallied uh, the organization to have a co-creation mindset around it as well. So I'm I'm a big believer that um, that partnership is needs to be strong if you want to have a healthy company and a healthy culture. But I'm also seeing at the board level, uh, more and more boards of directors are adding current or ex CHROs to the board because they recognize during the pandemic, they really didn't have a lot of human capital acumen sitting around the board table. Uh, they I've had many board uh, chairs and and just directors tell me. 
they probably over-architected uh, on, the, on the financial side and, uh, you know, looked for financial acumen before they looked for people acumen. And so I think there's a, there's a mad rush now to correct that. And I've seen a lot of my CHRO friends get added to public boards. I've even seen some public boards set up a separate culture subcommittee because they recognize that the culture of the organization is something they probably don't understand that well and, and need to going forward. So all of this is is healthy transition, I think, for most organizations, Bill. For this interview, we, we are we are coming towards the end already. Two last questions for you. Um, to, to recap, and I'm going to challenge you to answer in 60 seconds or less, Kevin. What, what, what advice do you have for business leaders when it comes to communicating change with employees? I think it's very clear that uh, the companies that fear change or resist change, they're typically low performing organizations and have employees that uh, don't like change. I, I think the most successful companies out there are the ones that embrace change and they look at it as not only normal, but typically look at it as an opportunity uh, for them to exploit, uh, particularly when change is happening in their industry or in their environment. So I think for leaders, you want to make sure you have a change-ready culture. Uh, the, this last year and a half showed us how important that is. It was one of the greatest tests of organizational agility and leadership agility uh, that we've ever seen in uh, in business. And I think the leadership skills are, are also changing. And we've documented that in some of the uh, recent research we've done around some of the leadership skills that are needed for the future. I think companies are going to be looking for a slightly different set of skills in their leaders in order to, um, you know, to effectively exploit this next era of work. And just finally for today, how can our listeners uh, connect with you? How can they get a copy of your book? How can they learn more? <laughs> Probably the easiest way is um, through the Culture Renovation website. So culturerenovation.com. Uh, you'll find a lot of information about the book. Uh, me and uh, there are other um, aspects that I think are helping organizations with their culture change efforts. There are some tools, there's a newsletter that's uh, monthly, which I write, uh, that goes out to uh, fans of the book. Uh, so check out culturerenovation.com. Awesome. Well, that just leaves me to say for today, Kevin Oakes, thank you so much for being my guest on this episode of the HR Chat Show. Thanks for having me again, Bill. It was a lot of fun. And listeners, as always, until next time, Happy working. Thank you for listening to the HR Chat Podcast, brought to you by the HR Gazette.